You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. First John chapter 4, and uh, we'll begin reading in verse 12. It's hard sometimes, in, in 1 John, I've discovered it's kind of hard to determine where one thought unit ends and the next one begins, because John kind of is all over the place sometimes. He, he kind of goes back and talks about this, and then he'll come back and talk about this. And so, uh, forgive me if it seems like maybe the thought isn't broken up in the natural way. This was the best that I could, I could determine on what to preach today. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 It says, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess... That Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Today we'll be preaching a sermon I've titled, Love Lived Out. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. and We'll get into the message now. Love Lived Out. You know, we've been in 1 John for a few months now. And every once in a while, I I, I like to go back and maybe remind you why I've called this series Family Traits. There are certain characteristics among family members that let you know they're related. I mean, it's hard to deny sometimes... Um, you know, we have a lot of children around here, and, and it's hard for me, it has been at times, to remember which child belongs with which parents. You ever deal with that? Whenever, especially because there are, again, so many children around, sometimes I'm thinking, okay, now that one, which one do they belong to? But there are some children, when they turn and look at me, I say, I know exactly which family that one belongs to, because there's such a resemblance in their face. And uh, you know, there are family resemblances in the way people look. There are family resemblances in the way that, that people speak. I, I think about my, sometimes, I have a brother, he's a little younger than I am, but when we talk, if you don't see us and you just hear us, you can almost not tell us apart. At least that's what I've been told. I think my, my voice is much more manly than his, but apparently not. The way he sounds, uh, the, the, you know, and we, it's very similar in family, you can tell by the volume level of certain families. There's always an outside voice going on. Some of them, the words that they use. I was at the men's, the men's camp out, which by the way was a real blessing, a great time with the men of Eastside. I think we probably had about, around 40 uh, men and boys this weekend. It was a lot of fun. Um, but I, uh, I kind of sponsored Ben Robinson to go and uh, I was uh, bringing him home yesterday and and he said, uh, I was telling him, we were talking about one of the first words that you say or words that you say when you're young. And 
he said that one of the first words he learned was dodecahedron. And I said, what, 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 what? <laughs> Apparently it's some kind of geometric shape with a bunch of faces and that's, he said his dad taught it to him. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on three-letter words with my kids, but dodecahedron, I had to spell it out here today. You know, I mean, he wouldn't know that word except that it's a word apparently that's important to his dad. So who knows why, but he taught it to him. You know, we have the same sound, we have the same volume. Very often families have the same uh, vocabulary and they have similar personalities, they have similar, similar skills and interests. Uh, I watched a video just a couple weeks ago, Brother Swift and, and his daughter, I think it was Jackson, out hunting a bear. I mean, how many 13-year-old girls do you know out shooting bears? Well, her dad likes to do it, and she was out with him. I think it's great. I mean, uh, those are the kind of things that, that we pass along to our children. I, I think it, it's a mark of a family when you've got those things in common. But in the same way that you can tell blood relatives by their traits... The same should be true in the family of God. It should be obvious when someone looks at us that we are part of God's family. I mean, God's children ought to look and sound like their Heavenly Father. And today's trait, what we're looking at today is one we've already been discussing. And it may seem like we've been discussing it too much, but we can't talk about it enough because today's trait, no other characteristic is a more convincing trait in God's family. Look at verse 12. It says, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. And I start by, by I want to break down this verse as, a, as kind of a springboard for the rest of what we'll be looking at. And the first thing he says is, No man has seen God at any time. You know, we cannot see God. John 4, 24 states that God is a spirit. The definition of a spirit does not include flesh and bones. A spirit doesn't have a body. And Jesus Christ himself said in Luke 24, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Colossians chapter 1 says about Christ that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And we're told in many places that he is immortal and invisible. God is a spirit, therefore he does not have a body. And John is teaching what you can find elsewhere in the New Testament. God is invisible. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. And if you think about it, it makes sense that God wouldn't have a body. God is not confined or limited to a body with flesh and bones. If he had a body, we could almost measure him. But because he is immortal, invisible, he's immeasurable, he's beyond our comprehension, he's eternal. I'm kind of glad he doesn't have a body because it kind of elevates the way that I can view him. You know, the fact that he doesn't have a body makes sense. A body's a limitation. It, it also makes sense uh, the, the, uh, in the first two commandments when you think, in Exodus 20, that he said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You know what that means is that God was saying that you are not to try to form an image that resembles me or that it de depicts me. Idolatry is wrong because limiting God to a form is to view him far less than what he really is. 
Idolatry limits God in ways that sell him short of his true nature. God is a spirit. So knowing that, when Jesus Christ came, the world got its first glimpse of what God is like in a body. It's like Colossians said, Christ is the image of the invisible God. So we, God doesn't have a body. We cannot see God. The second thing I see in this verse, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. Hey, this is amazing. It's the same word that, God, that John often uses as the word abide, that God dwells in us. John was big on that word abiding. He says we ought to abide or remain close to God in fellowship. He also says that those who abide or remain reveal that they are truly part of the family. Like if you remain, in other words, if you make a claim that you're a child of God, that you're a part of the family, and you remain, there's your evidence that you really were part of the family. And John is saying, you, we, abide, you know, we abide in God. God then also abides in us. He dwells in us. You know, the longer that we abide in God, the deeper our roots grow, the deeper our relationship with God grows. And in John's mind, if you're a true believer, you abide in Christ, and Christ will abide in you. You know, he doesn't give a whole lot of wiggle room. And, and I want to be careful today um, because I'm not going to try to stand here and define your experiences, but let me just say this according to John. If you're a child of God, you're going to abide with God. If you're a child of God, you will be close. You will have fellowship. You will have a growing, deepening relationship with him. And on top of that, if you really are a child of God, you will abide. You will remain. You'll stay where you are. Uh, and, and I know we have times where we might float a little bit here or there. And I've, there have been times in my own life where I floated away a little bit, maybe even not physically, but inside. You've probably been there before. You're not as close as you ought to be. I'm not saying that you're not a child of God. I'm trying to define it in the terms that John gives us. He says, if you're a child of God, if you're a member of the family, you're going to abide, and you will, and God will dwell in you as well. So understand this, the, God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. I mean, that, that's, that's incredible to me. I mean, God who has no form, God who created the heavens and the earth, God who is eternal in nature, God who has no limitations, God who is holy, God who is omnipotent, God who is omnipresent, God who knows everything. The Bible says that God dwells in us if we're part of the family. That's a miracle. That's amazing. He takes up residence in us. It's the Spirit's dwelling in us that enables us then to love like God loves. And we've talked about this already, that God has shed his love abroad in our hearts that enables us to love others that way. The way John puts it in John 15 in verses 4 and 5 is, Abide in me and I in you. This is Christ talking. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. It's the same concept. As we abide and establish deeper roots in Christ, he turns it into visible fruit by working in us, which gets worked out through our behavior. So I'm explaining this verse because it really does lead us into the thoughts of the rest of the passage. 
God is invisible. We cannot see God. But God dwells in us. He animates us. His Holy Spirit abides in us and gives us the ability to show his fruit as we live. The third point I want to see in verse 12 is that our love toward others reveals God's love through us. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Now this this may cause some confusion, but when John uses the word perfected, he's not saying that we're without sin. I think we all could understand. I mean, John has already talked about in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He even goes as far to say, if any man say that he doesn't have sin, he's a liar. So we can know, based on what John has already written in the book of 1 John, that John is, when he uses the word perfected, he's not saying that we don't sin anymore. He's not saying that we're without sin, we don't have to worry about that. Perfected has to mean something else. The word perfected, according to the dictionary of this Greek word here, it means to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end. So uh, the way that I, my mind uh, was working when I was trying to think of this visual is I think about someone running in a track meet. You know, there's very few things as exciting as that 100-meter race because it's so short and you have one shot at it and they're done. The, world, the, the world's best are done in under 10 seconds. So you, you start the race and you get on the blocks. I won't do that today because I may not be able to get off the blocks, but... You start in the blocks, and when the gun fires, everyone with all of their, their power, with every ounce of their being, puts all that they have into the race, and they run for 100 meters. Now, if, if at 94 meters, all of them just stop right there and walk off the track. I mean, that's, that's silly, I know. But that would be an imperfect run. They didn't carry it to the end. But if you're running that 100 meters and you go all the way through the tape, that is a perfect run, meaning you carried it all the way out to the end. And you've seen that before in a longer run when they have that final lap and they have that kick and they push, they run all the way through the end. That's what John is talking about. He's saying that that this perfection here is when something is carried out all the way to the end, it's finished, it's accomplished. And this confirms the significance of love. Because listen, the end, the completion, the accomplishment of God dwelling in us is that we love. The very end of God dwelling in me and working in me is that at the finish line, there's love. That's the end. That's the accomplishment. That's the, that's the final kick. The fulfillment of God's work in us is that we love as he loves. Agape love is, we've talked about this already, it's still the subject here. Agape love is unconditional, sacrificial love that seeks somebody else's best. When we love like God loves, that's the result of his work in us. That we have agape love, that we're sacrificial, that we're selfless, that we're unconditional, that we love and seek somebody else's best. That's the end of God working in us. If you haven't gotten the idea that agape love is a big deal for you, 
I hope this helps you see it. See, God working in us, what his intention for us is, is that we love. That's why when we go to Matthew 22 and, and, and someone comes to Christ and says, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. What did J- Jesus Christ say is the ultimate trait for a member of the family? It's love. Agape. It reminds me in some ways of, of having, uh, having a child. You know, those nine months, I hear those nine months are pretty rough. I hear that that process can be difficult. Now, we've been through it five times, but I was a spectator. Thank the Lord. You know, when you go through all of that, what are you hoping for in the end? You're hoping for a healthy baby. You're praying for a healthy baby. A healthy baby is the ultimate result of pregnancy. Those nine months are hard. They're difficult. But the payoff is worth it. The pregnancy is perfected. Again, here's the other idea. Again, it's perfected. It's carried through completely. When you are finally holding in your hands a healthy baby, you know, without that payoff, it would be difficult to convince a, a lady to go through all of that. But the payoff makes it worth it. That, so what's the payoff then of love? Well, Christ came to live on this planet so the world could see the Father. Let me say that again. Christ came to live on this planet so the world can see the Father. Why? Because God is invisible. He doesn't have a body. But God dwells in us. So when we love, we're not just obeying and doing what God tells us to. No, we are actually revealing God to the world. Jesus Christ came to reveal God to the world. In John 1, 4, that incarnation of Christ, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And he wrote a few verses later in John 1, 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That was Christ's purpose for coming, to reveal the Father to the world. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And I know this is a lot, just try to follow it here, but Jesus Christ only lived down here for 33 years or so. I mean, his job was to reveal God to the world, but but he didn't stay down here. He left after 33 plus years. He ascended back to heaven, and now we wait for his imminent return. I'm thankful for that the day that we can look forward to seeing him face to face. I'm grateful. But listen, in the meantime, God's revelation of himself to mankind comes leather bound. So back when Jesus Christ was born, he was skin bound in a little tiny body, God. Well, now God's revelation of himself to us comes between uh, this piece of leather and these pages here. It's leather bound. This book is God's word. It's been preserved for us and, and it continues to be God's revelation of himself to the world. But let me ask you though, is this the only way God is revealed today? See, in terms of truth, yes. In terms of doctrine, Yes, but if you're talking about a visible, living, breathing look at what God is like, go no further than the Christian who abides in Christ to the point that they love like God loves.
when a limited, finite person like you and I love in a way that only, can only be attributed to something supernatural and God-given, it's pretty hard to ignore. See, what verse 12 and, and the big thought of this unit is getting to is this. Listen, the unseen God who was revealed to the world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ can now be revealed in God's children, specifically through the way that we love each other. Wow. I mean, how incredible is that? That I, I mean, I know myself. I know my limitations. I know my sin. I know my leanings. I know. But that I can present a clear, visible picture of God to the world by displaying his love? I mean, how is that even possible? Well, it all started with Jesus Christ. When we got saved, we received, we're told, a divine nature, and we're given the command then to reflect Jesus Christ. Do you know how lofty this is? I mean, we've been given the privilege and responsibility of revealing God's nature to the world. I mean, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. John is saying you ought to love because that's what your God is like. Did you get that? You know what John is saying? You ought to love because, you, because that's what your God is like. See, so far in chapter 4, we've been given some other good reasons to love. We, we've been told uh, to love each other for some solid reasons. For instance, he said back up in, in earlier, he said God is love. He's the source of love. And, he, and so because he's the source of love and he's given us the capacity to love, we should love each other. That's a wonderful reason. Again, we should love each other uh, earlier in the chapter because God is love and he's given us the capacity to love. So love one another. That's like saying, um, okay, there's a millionaire, multimillionaire, he put a million dollars in your bank account over the weekend. And he's given you permission to spend all of it. So it's time to go to the store, right? That's what that, that truth is, that God is the source of love and he's given us the capacity to love. It's kind of like that. Here's, a, here's somebody with all these resources. They've made all these resources available to you. So go spend. I mean, go enjoy it. That's a pretty good reason to love, that God is love and he's given us the, the, the capacity to love. The other reason that John gives here in chapter four is when he says we love him because he first loved us. That's another pretty good reason to love, isn't it? That somebody would love me enough that he would send his own son to die on a cross for me. That's like saying um, somebody loved you enough or they cared for you enough that they went out and saved your life. Therefore, you should go out and love other people that same way. That's a pretty good reason to love, isn't it? The fact that God is love and he's given me the capacity, the, the fact that God loved me first, those are good reasons to love. They are, they're solid. But, but what I want, to th want you to think about here is this reason is really even deeper than even those See, those reasons both have to do, uh, have a benefit for me. The fact that God is love and he gave me the capacity to love, well, I've, been, I've received something I need to go give. The fact that God loved me to the point that he would die for me, I, that makes me want to go out and love. But what John is saying here, this is even deeper, it's a little different than those reasons. What he's saying here is that you should love others so the world can see God. You should go love 
so the world can know what God's nature is like. Love each other because the world needs to see what God is like. You know, we can actually show the world the character of God. I mean, think about love in our culture. We talked about it some last week. There are few people, listen, listen, there are few people in our culture that are representing the character and nature and love of God in this world right now. You can't hardly see it anywhere you go. If there's ever been a time that the world needs to see God's true love, it's now. No, this is a very missions-y type thought. The way we live presents a look into the character of God to those around us. Look at the end of verse 17. He says, because as he is, so are we in this world. So that's, that's kind of the end thought. What we're talking about here in verse 12 leads up to that. But what John gets to is he says, basically, like God is, because as he is, it's our responsibility, and yea, not just our responsibility, but also our privilege to be like God in this world so they can see what he's like. Boy, what a, what a high task we have. What a lofty proposition We're not just loving because somebody loved us first. We're not just loving because somebody gave us the resources to love. We are loving because we want the world to know what kind of God we serve. God is love. And listen, I want the world to know that. He's agape love. Everything he does flows from love. God loves because it's his nature. It's the expression of his very being. He loves us not because we've earned it and certainly not because we're worthy. No, he loves us because that's him being true to his nature. He wanted our best so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for us. That's agape love. And you might say, well, wow, you sure do talk about the cross and love a lot. When are we gonna move on to something more interesting, something more meaty? Come on. You realize without agape love, God wouldn't have had enough interest enough in us to send his son to die for us. There's nothing more worthy, there's no subject uh, more important to repeat than the love of God toward a sinner. I would have no hope and you would have no hope of eternity in heaven without love. You tell me what's more interesting than that. So by abiding then, by staying close, by remaining with God and allowing his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, we can love in a way the world has never seen. Love perfected. Love fulfilled. God's design for our lives comes to pass when we choose to reflect his nature. Folks, here's what I want to say today. The world needs to see love lived out through us. They need to see us reveal what God is like in the way we love each other. Love lived out that seeks the good of the other person. It should be evident in the way we treat each other right here at Eastside Baptist Church. There needs to be a representation of God's love in our interactions. So many churches get caught up in the drama when conflicts and issues arise and The world's response in those moments is to automatically go on the defensive and to put up walls and resort to self-preservation. But God's love is never about us. Love lived out doesn't make it all about me. Love lived out means I humbly do what it takes to preserve unity, 
to display forgiveness. I mean, even when we're wronged, that's the mature, spiritual, love-lived-out way to treat each other in a church family. Where else in this culture are people going to walk into a room and see God's love lived out? I can promise you that if you're driving down the street, as I talked about in Sunday school, if you're driving down the street and you cut somebody off in traffic, you're not going to see God's love lived out. If you turn on the news and you listen to him talk about politics, you're not going to see God's love lived out. Where else in our culture, folks, Eastside Baptist Church, nowhere else is representing God's love in our culture. When people walk into this room, they should see love lived out. When they see our group together, they should see love lived out. This weekend, went to the men's camp out. And I just tried to kind of observe what was happening. And I'm telling you, I saw many instances and acts of love lived out. As, as I was there setting up my tent, um, guys came over and started helping with it without even being asked. I mean, I didn't really want their help. They made it more complicated, but no, just kidding. My tent was upside down, but they were helping. It was great. Now, I watched that. I watched as guys would pull up in their vehicles, and they had stuff to carry, and guys would go from the campground and go and just start grabbing stuff and carrying it over there. I watched uh, three or four guys especially that, that sat by the grill and, and made, made all, dinner for all those people, cooked hamburgers and all this stuff. I saw Brother Chad bring a bunch of meat from, from Zesto's and, and, and cook it up for us. That, that Saturday morning, people were making breakfast early. You know, and I was sitting there as the pastor of Eastside Baptist Church, not having been in an environment like that uh, very much, thinking, this is love lived out. You say, well, that's not that big of a deal. No, I'm, I've been to a lot of places where guys can't even talk to each other because they can't stand to be around each other, much less serve each other with a spirit of humility over and over and over and over. It's love lived out. And there's not going to be anywhere else in this world where people can go and see God's love perfected. The end of God working in us lived out. Love lived out should be evident not just with each other, but in how we love the lost. We ought to love souls enough that our primary concern is that they hear the gospel so they can be saved. I mean, even if it means handing out a tract to a stranger which I'm telling you today, that's not an easy thing to do. You don't know what the reaction is going to be, but the love of God is lived out through us by doing something that isn't about us, but it's about them. The world needs to see love lived out in our homes. The way husbands and wives treat each other, that a husband would love his wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5 says, to the point that it's not about him He's not walking in the, in the house ready to be served. He's not throwing his weight around, being the boss of the house. No, but he's serving his wife, loving his wife, caring for her, treating her kindly, speaking patiently to her. That's how Jesus Christ loves the church. In a home that a wife would submit herself to her husband in a respectful way, accepting the role. And listen, I talked about this in Sunday school, um, but not because I'm trying to harp on it, um, but, but they would just accept the role. It, not that it's less important, but that it's just different. I mean, that Jesus Christ is, Jesus Christ is God, and yet he accepted a role that wasn't the same as his father's. 
Here he is, the creator of the, of the universe, the one who died on the cross and has been lifted up, highly exalted, and yet he accepted a role and didn't balk at it. He didn't push back at it because it didn't, his role was no less important. It was just different than the role as God, that God the Father had. I mean, it's not a slight on Jesus Christ to be in subjection to his Father. The world, listen, the world needs to see love lived out and that they need to see marriages in which husbands and wives live out the kind of love that God instituted for the marriage relationship. You tell me, where in this culture, where else are they going to see love lived out in that way? So my question today is, when someone sees your life, do they see love lived out? Or would they simply see another example of love that's self-motivated? See, that's everywhere. It reminds me, there's a, a little boy in our church in Stillwater, and one day, we were, my, uh, another staff guy and I were standing there, and he had this piece of candy or a sucker, and he was probably three years old, and he sucked on it for a little bit, and then he walked up to us with it in his hand, and he said, I want you to have it. See, in a vacuum, I'm thinking, what a selfless little boy. No, but when I realized the sucker was gross, it kind of changed the gift a little bit. You see, that's, that's a pretty typical illustration of the way love is lived out in our culture. See, most people, when they love and they live out their love... It doesn't start with a selfless desire to just be in the best interest of somebody else. It starts with, well, this is inconvenient for me, and, or I don't like this, or this serves me. It's a self-serving kind of love. That's the kind of love you'll see out there. You see somebody who really, in the end, is in it for themselves. You don't really see very many illustrations of, of somebody just loving because they want what's best for somebody else, whether or not it inconveniences them, whether or not it costs them, whether or not it's something they prefer to do, they're willing to just do it because that's Jesus Christ's kind of love. That's God's kind of love. That is God's love lived out. It wasn't God's, I mean, God's uh, son, Jesus Christ, came and gave everything up. I mean, he knew that he would be forsaken by his father, and yet for the good of you and I, he died on a cross. That sounds a little different than in Philippians 2 where it says, for all seek their own. That's the definition of, of our culture's love. See, it's not love lived out, it's love limited. See, my natural definition of love only goes so far. When it starts to inconvenience me or not go according to my plans, I cut it off because I naturally seek my own. But Paul said in Philippians 2, that same chapter, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the, on the things of others. That sounds a lot like the definition of agape, doesn't it? The chief motive of agape love is that it seeks what's best for the other person. If I get to define the level of love in my life, listen, if I get to define the level of love in my life, if I'm the one setting the standard, guess what? I'm going to set the bar pretty low. Because as soon as it's inconveniencing me, or as soon as I don't get recognition for it, or as soon as it costs me a little bit too much, then I cut it off. When we love to the level that comes easiest or most naturally, we tend to make 
our expressions of love about ourselves. I want you to have it. But when God's work in us overcomes our nature to the point that his love can actually be seen, the only way that can be explained is supernaturally. And I want you to notice some other effects of love lived out in this passage. We're going to skim through these pretty quickly because I'm trying to get you to just get that main thought. But look at some other effects of love lived out. Look at verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. See, our assurance in the work of the Holy Spirit is strengthened as our love is lived out. See, we live out love, and as we do, we know, hereby we know that, that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. He dwells in us, and it is through his work that the fruit of love is perfected. As that happens, we gain assurance. Outward love toward each other gives us inward assurance of our position with God and the Spirit's work in our lives. Look at verses 14 and 15. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. That word we, there at the beginning of verse 14, it says we have seen. That's referring to the apostles. It's referring to their witness of Jesus Christ. They were convinced that he's the Son of God and that his great purpose was to come into the world to be the exclusive hope of salvation for the lost. And as we dwell in God and God dwells in us, our confidence in the person and purpose of Jesus Christ only increases. What confirms it to us? Well, the fruit of, of love in our lives as the children of God. So as we love, we start growing in our confidence in the Holy Spirit and our assurance. We grow in our confidence uh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In verse 16 it says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love loveth, dwelleth in God, and God in him. Our faith is elevated. Perfect, perfected love builds our faith, folks. It says, we've known and believed God's love to us, but when we dwell in love, it further convinces us that God's love is not just some outward force, it dwells in us. Talk about a faith builder. The outward evidence of God's inward working convinces us that he dwells within us. It elevates our faith. Only a supernatural work could make us less about ourselves and more about other people. As we love our confidence in all of these things is elevated. Verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Our confidence in our future at the judgment seat is emboldened. As God's love and I don't want you to miss it. Don't get lost in all this. As God's love works in us and we live it out, it increases our belief that someday when we stand before God in judgment, we can stand with confidence. And you talk about an invaluable effect of perfected love. To have confidence that someday when you stand before God with boldness, that's priceless. And I'm telling you, love perfected doesn't just benefit the people around us. It doesn't just show the world the character of God. And that's an outstanding result. It's an outstanding motivation. But it also, in the meantime, folks, it increases our faith. It raises the level of our assurance. 
It gives us confidence in more spiritual ways than we could ever measure. The effects of perfected love, love lived out, could never be attained with any level of experience or head knowledge or practice or appearances. As God dwells in us, His love is lived out of us, which turns around and strengthens our faith in immeasurable ways. It's like a circle. Rather than seeking assurance or confidence or more faith, which is sometimes what we do. Here's the point of all this. Sometimes we go out and say, I I need more experience because I just don't feel confident. Or I need more knowledge because I'm just not very self-assured. Or, or I need some, some, some secret nugget because I'm a little bit shaky in my faith. No, that's what John is saying is there's a connection here. And, and rather than going out and trying to educate ourselves or get more experience or serve more or take on more ministries, what we need to do is just settle in the fact that as I dwell in God and God dwells in me, he works in me and allows me to live love lived out. And when that happens, the more that happens the more confident I get in my position. So maybe we should stop trying to seek some new truth and maybe we should just go back to the root of why God has us here and that is to work in us enough that love is lived out. It could be that the reason that you doubt your faith is because there hasn't been any practical effects of your faith lived out. There's not much love involved. You're not really living out love. It's kind of like life for yourself. We need love lived out in our homes with husbands and wives and wives to husbands and fathers and mothers. Is is it love lived out in the way you speak to your children? We need love lived out at work. Is it love lived out in the way you seek to help others and instead of climbing that corporate ladder and only looking for ways to get ahead yourself? Is it love lived out when you have an opportunity to share Christ's love instead of fearfully keeping it to yourself? With the lost, is it when you cross paths with someone at the store or in the community, do you practice love lived out? Or do you keep the message that Christ came to save them from their sins to yourself? Love lived out means you have a heart to tell the lost about the Savior of the world. In our church, is love lived out? Is it lived out in our interactions with each other? I mean, how we serve alongside each other, how we speak to each other. Eastside Baptist Church, are we willing to serve even if we don't get noticed? Is there anyone in, in this church, in this place that you just couldn't work beside? If you were scheduled next to them, you'd have to make a switch. When there's an offense, do you make it about yourself and refuse to operate based on the biblical pattern of love lived out? Do we take time to express gratitude when someone's a blessing to us? There's a lot of ways to have love lived out. But let me just say it this way. Love lived out is the superior way. Me lived out, it feels more natural. In the, and, and right in that moment, I may get my way, but it always ends up in a mess. Because if everyone seeks their own, then we're not working together. It breeds an environment of selfishness. So the idea today is, are you going to choose to operate on a superior, better, more helpful level, love lived out, or down on your level? You may get your way, but you miss out on all those benefits we just talked about.
your confidence, your assurance, your faith, your belief. I remember in high school, I, I played football and, and we would start about a month before the first game, practice. And we would have a practice in the morning, weightlifting in the afternoon, practice in the evening. That month was the longest month of my life. I mean, we called them two-a-days. Really, it was three-a-days because you're lifting two. And, and you bet you couldn't work. You didn't do anything else. You just got ready for the season. And I remember uh, leading up to our first game. You know, in practice, all we had, ever, all we had seen uh, is each other in practice every day. You know, you're going against the same guys. You're just learning plays. You're going through drills, and you just get the, 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 it just gets old. You're just ready to do something different. And I remember our, our coach before that last game um, in my senior year, he stood up there and, and he said, it's time to show out. Meaning, it's time to prove that all of this practice and all of the drills and all of the monotony and all of the repetition and all of the hard work and blood and sweat and tears, it's time to prove that all of that is worth it. It's time to prove that it all pays off. You see, because if all a football team does is practice, it will never see the benefits of practice. And it's time for some Christians to finally show out. We have far too many that have been sitting on the practice field and they've never really stepped into the game of love lived out. And on the practice, it's all about the team. It's all about us. It's all inward. It's all self-focused. But when you get on the field, your focus turns to something else. And it's time for some, maybe even in this room, that you've you know, been sitting on the practice field for a long time and you're not growing and you don't have confidence and you don't have assurance and you don't have faith and it's all kind of weak and a little crumbly. Well, maybe it's time to assure yourself not through learning more, not through reading more books, not through just educating yourself, but putting into practice what, you, what God has been working in you your whole Christian life. It's time to show out. You know, if God has been working in you and you never live it out, you miss out on the life God created you to live. What a disappointment. To be made for something, to prepare for it, to go through two-a-days, to do all the lifts and all the runs and get ready, and then the game gets canceled? That's disappointing. You prepared for it, you anticipate it, but the day of the game you walk away to never fulfill it? There's no payoff? Christian, it's time to show out. Not just because it helps your life run smoothly, but it puts you in a position to fulfill God's purpose for your life. Are you experiencing love lived out? If not, it's time. In your relationships at home, in your relationships and your witness at work, in your testimony to the lost, in your interactions with others, right here at Eastside Baptist Church. Love lived out. God doesn't put all of this in us for us to sit on the sideline and never use it. It's time to show out.
love lived out. Let's stand. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.